make our way back to our seats. You can can open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. And uh, this morning we're going to continue to to seek to mine the, the, the diamond of the gospel out of the book of Ephesians. And we've, we've talked about how the book of Ephesians speaks the gospel in such direct terms, but especially it speaks the gospel in how it pertains to the life of the church, what it means to be the church, what it means to, to live out the life of the church, not fueled by guilt, shame, or fear, or these isms we've talked about, legalism, moralism, cynicism, racism, but to live out of the power of the gospel so that we don't find ourselves a church just as bored, broken, and burnt out as those in the world. So read along with me, Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the good news that through the life, death, and resurrection of your son Jesus, all things are made new, especially us. We thank you for the gospel we've already been able to sing this morning, to recite together through word and prayer and praise. And we thank you now for the word of your gospel. May you take it, may you shape us and mold us so that we go out and live everyday lives following Jesus with grace that changes everywhere we go. And may that begin in us. We ask this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians 3, 1 through 13 kind of feels like a a side note in in this book. It's as if Paul sort of gets off track and kind of begins to ramble for a moment. But really, I believe he's answering the question that verse 13 states. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is for your glory. So like in all of Ephesians, there's many, many big truths in this passage, but we just really want to answer how Paul's dealing with that. He is wanting this church that knows this beloved apostle is in prison to not lose heart. So I know of a situation of a, of a football team 
that sort of uh, was compiled together of maybe what you would call the lesser players or the players of the lesser gifting for whatever reason or however you might want to describe it. And they're on the team, and what, what they're being told is, well, you just need to be happy that, you're, that you get to play the game. But as they play each of these games, they just get pummeled over and over again. So whatever position it is they may be able to play or whatever opportunity that may be given to them, that opportunity is immediately met with disappointment. That opportunity is immediately met by despair. And it feels like, does it really matter if you play the game if you never get a first down? Does it really matter if you play the game and you never get a touchdown? And then after the game, someone offers to sell you the DVD. Would you like to watch this again? Now, I think if we're honest, sometimes maybe following Jesus and being Jesus' people can feel like that. It feels like, well, I know I'm in the game. I know I'm feel like I'm doing what God's called me to do, and I'm grateful for that. But I'm not really sure this is where I thought I would end up when I signed up for this journey. For the Apostle Paul, where he ends up again and again, is in prison. And if you feel like Paul is sort of, a, if we're exaggerating the case, I'd just like to, to read for you briefly kind of a description of what most of Paul's ministry and following Jesus look like from 2 Corinthians. He says uh, these things. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in tool and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from all those things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. So Paul, this is the same Paul that is writing this letter and he is telling them what we read in verse 13 here of Ephesians 3. I don't want you to lose heart over my suffering. But I want us to feel that if anyone had any reason to lose heart over their suffering, it would have been the Apostle Paul. He's not being greeted with a celebration, with a parade, or with a party. And sometimes our lives feel like that. And we need to see that we're not alone. We need to see that if we, if we wanted to take the time that Abraham could relate to this, as he lived all of his life trusting the promises of God and seeing very little of what was promised actually received. We could talk about Moses, the great leader of God, and yet who himself didn't even enter the promised land. We could speak of David, who did have great victories, but if you look at his life, the majority of his life was not spent in victory, but on the run. From Saul and then his own son Absalom. We could speak of Israel. And although they find themselves like the church now does at the center of history. Where a people whose lives were plagued by suffering, exile. Sometimes due to their own sin. But other times just due to the attack of other enemies. And all of us in our lives want to gravitate to the pain. 
to the problems, to the pebbles in our shoes. We want to hang our heads in pity and despair. We want to lose heart. We not only lose heart, we revel in it to an extent. But the same God who is the God of Abraham, the God of Moses, the God of David, the God of Israel, the God of Paul, is our God today in Jesus Christ. And so we must guard our hearts in suffering by guiding our hearts with the gospel. And I hope the gospel is not a throwaway word to you guys. And if it is in any way, I hope this morning it's, it's girded with strength from the truth of God's word. So the gospel of what? We're going to see the gospel of a few things can guide our hearts in suffering. The first is the gospel of the lordship of Jesus. Then the gospel of the grace of Jesus. Then the gospel of the church of Jesus. The first thing we see is this is the gospel of the lordship of Jesus. Where is Paul physically? Physically, Paul is in prison. Physically, Paul is bound. Physically, Paul is incapacitated. Physically, Paul is impeded. He has been wrongly accused. He has been arrested. He has been held up. Paul's plans have not happened according to what he had designed. But notice, where is Paul mentally? Where is Paul's heart? This is amazing. He says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He doesn't say I'm a prisoner of Rome. He says I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He's saying Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Jesus is Lord, not my jailer. It may look like, it may feel like these external circumstances and these external oppressors in my life are in control right now. But Jesus is Lord. No one is stopping him. He's on a mission on behalf of the Gentile people. And in his mind, he has said, my Lord has just said, this is the next stop on that mission. Prison. Paul's logic is based on the sovereign lordship of Jesus that is at the center of what we call the good news. When we were young, we played a game called Capture the Flag. Is that a game that you're familiar with? So part of Capture the Flag is you have, you have a flag, obviously, on both teams' sides, and your goal is to get to that flag, but you can, be, you can be captured in the game as well. And if you're captured in the game, there's a jail that you are taken to, and whoever captures you, the, at least the way that we played it, the capturer would take the capturee and have to walk them to the prison. Now... Uh, if I'm remembering this correctly, one of the greatest tactics in Capture the Flag was if usually a person that's, there's usually one or two people who stand out and who are super good, like all alike. And so I was probably the person that would get captured. And you get captured, but if you're smart, you can get captured strategically. Because if you get captured by one of the better people while they're taking you to prison, now guess what? Now you've opened, you've taken this guy actually out of the game for a little bit. And if you're good, you can learn to get captured strategically and intentionally. And so if someone were to ask me in that mo moment, am I captured? Well, the answer is yes and no. I'm captured, but there's a bigger purpose at work here. There's a bigger plan. 
It may look like I'm losing. It may look like I'm not in control. But there's something greater at work. This is how Paul lived his life. This is how Paul dealt with all those things that we read. And notice he said the daily anxiety that I face. Because for many of us, we could, we could handle the big things. It's that daily drip, drip, drip that gets us. But Paul is saying is that God is not, Jesus is not just Lord of the beheading. He's Lord of the everyday life in prison. He's not just Lord when the terrorist has a gun to our head. He's Lord on Tuesday morning when you don't know if you can get out of bed. This is why Paul, in one beautiful picture in Acts chapter 16, he's in, he's in prison with Silas. And you know what they begin to do? Is they begin to sing. Because they see that Jesus is Lord. That's the difference between a person who just pouts and whines, turns inward into self-pity, and a person who really believes that Jesus is Lord. They see there is someone who is in control beyond the circumstances. So we have to ask ourselves, do we believe that Jesus is Lord? See, we see our theology and our beliefs and our faith mostly in our sufferings and not our successes. I want to say that again. We really see what we believe most often, not in our successes, but in our sufferings. We're a church that would say boldly, we don't believe in any of this nonsense that you can have Jesus as Savior but not Lord. But do we really believe that? It'll show when things do not go our way. It'll show when it looks like other people have arrested us. You feel like that sometimes other people, they're in control of your life. They've arrested your plans. They've arrested your potential. They've arrested your progress. You feel like you are in prison. They're holding the key. Would we dare to believe what God's word teaches us, that even in those situations, Jesus is Lord? Will we dare to believe what we've already read in Ephesians, that we serve a God who is working all things according to the counsel of His will in Christ Jesus? Then we have to let this reality guide us when nothing in our lives is going according to plan. When we're heading somewhere good and it seems like someone does arrest us. Maybe when it seems like our own, we've been arrested by our own self, our own emotions. When it feels like we're alone. It feels like no one notices us. Paul says, I am a prisoner of Christ. He's saying, pray for me, but don't pity me. And don't lose heart because no one supersedes the lordship of Jesus in my life. So how do we not lose heart? How do we... Let the gospel guide us. We remember the gospel of the lordship of Jesus, but also the gospel of the grace of Jesus. We see this in verses 2 through 8. Again, so many things here we can just but, but touch the surface. But what we see, I think, is that Paul sees his suffering and his circumstances through the lens of grace. First of all, grace through him in verses 2 through 6. Paul is, he never gets over this in all of his life. He gets to deliver the message of God's grace. That's what it means when he says, have you heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you? A steward is someone who's entrusted with something, a manager of something, a, a keeper of something for others. And Paul, above all things, sees himself as a steward of God's grace. 
and he's amazed by that. He over and over again, he's like, what a gig. If you remember Publisher Clearinghouse, no, I know Rachel's mom does. Uh, Ed McMahon, wouldn't it be great to get to go up to someone's door, door and knock on it and say, you've just won a million dollars. Wouldn't that be a great job? Would it be a great job, some of these extreme makeover shows, you get to be the person that says, move that bus, is that what they said on that? Move that bus, and if that was your job, you just got paid to give people good news. That is our job. That's how Paul viewed his life. That's how Paul viewed his imprisonment. I, I get to be the guy who tells other people about the grace of God. God has entrusted me with this. Now, Paul certainly in maybe a, a particular and special way through his apostleship, but all of us in the fact that we are the sent people of God. And Paul's saying, I get to go and I get to unravel this mystery. Not mystery, don't, don't think in the sense of something that's confusing or hard to understand. That's how we often think of the word mystery. But mystery in, in this biblical usage is more like a, a secret that now has been revealed. An open secret. Something that, that people didn't used to know, but now they know. It's not confusing. It's just now been made clear. It's been revealed. It's this accomplishment that has taken place in Christ. It's been made known to the sons of men, that was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, but it is now been revealed through the holy apostles and prophets. And what is it? Verse 6, really following up on what we saw last week in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You see, within the Old Testament, there was an expectation of the inclusion of the Gentiles. But, but as all the fulfillments we see from the Old Testament usually take on this even greater form in some ways than were expected, is it was never thought that there would be this one people of God where all people were equal, where there was no Jew or Gentile. But this has taken place through, in Jesus Christ, through the gospel. You know, not everyone liked that message. Particularly the Jewish people who were not accepting of the Lordship of Christ. They were often the ones behind Paul's beatings and imprisonment. Because you know, people don't like it when you mess with their sense of superiority. People don't like, all people don't like the way that the gospel makes all of us equal in Christ and takes all of the glory off of us and puts all of the glory on Him. You know what Paul's attitude was? I don't care if you shoot the messenger. I'm just glad, thankful I get to carry the message. Because Paul not only saw his grace through him, but grace to him. In verse 7 he says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. So Paul's saying, not only am I a steward of this grace, but really, first of all, I, I was a recipient of this grace. Through the work of God's power. Verse 8. To me though I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given. To preach to the Gentiles. The unsearchable riches of Christ. Notice Paul says. Though I am the very least of all the saints. There's another place in his writings. Where he says. I am the chief of sinners. Now this isn't Paul having some sort of false humility. We can see Paul's here. He's filled with boldness. He's filled with confidence. 
when we see Paul really has this, this grace-based view of himself, I, I'm the least of all the people of the people of God. Paul's not living a life of comparison. You see, this is what gets us off track so often when we're suffering is we're saying, hey, I feel like I'm doing just as good as that person, but it looks like they're, they're getting it better, God. But Paul is so captured by grace, he doesn't play that game. He's not thinking, well, you know, what's the Apostle John doing right now? What's the Apostle Peter doing right now? They better not have it easier than me. No, he says, I'm the least of all the saints. I get to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. He's so caught up with the inexhaustible, untraceable depth the riches of who Jesus is, he's lost in that, not in himself. Many of you know the missionary David Livingston. And like all people of the past, there's varied views on their life. But David Livingston, at least in the best take, was a person who gave his life to see that the word of the gospel would be taken deeper into Africa than it was ever taken before. And this cost him greatly. He lost a, a child due to disease that was contracted there. I think we sort of gloss over that when we talk about historical figure. But we, need to, we feel that as if it was yours. He lost a, a, a wife to malaria. Again, feel that as if it was your spouse or friend. He lost his reputation because many in England wanted just to piggyback on his gospel work and use it as an opportunity for colonialization. And oftentimes that didn't work. And he was the, the target of the failure. And this is what David Livingston, though, had to say near the end of his life. He said, For my own part, I've never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I've made in spending so much of my life in Africa. And he says this, Is that a sacrifice? which brings its own blessed reward and helpful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter. Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then, with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life, may make us pause, may cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink, but let this only be for a moment. All these things are nothing compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us and for us. And then he says these words that he's famous for. I never made a sacrifice. Is that a biblical thing to say? After all, we're commanded to live, be living sacrifices. Well, I think if we listen carefully to what he says in there, I think we can say it is. I think he's saying what the Apostle Paul himself says in Philippians chapter 3. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. What Jesus says in Mark 10 when they say, but Jesus, we've left all of these things. We've left our family. We've left our home. We've left our land to follow you. And Jesus looks at them and says, Yes, but I tell you, those who have left all these things are going to receive so much greater things. 
in my kingdom. See, we have to ask ourselves, do we see ourselves as stewards of grace when we suffer, or do we suffer as those who see ourselves as entitled employees? Because that makes all the difference. Instead of grace evoking our hearts so often when we suffer, many times we have what I'm beginning to call automated gospel responses versus amazed gospel humility. So here's a danger in a church like ours that talks about the gospel so much is that we feel this should start to happen. Well, I know, I know I'm feeling really bad right now, but I feel like I should say something that sounds good and gospel-y. That make any sense? What are some examples, maybe? We'll take a second. You can speak out loud of an automated gospel should. Okay. Yeah, Here, here's where, where I'm going, that's good though, is you're suffering really bad and you say, well, I know I should just be thankful. Does that make sense? Any others you can think of? I know this is confusing. Well, not a good question. Yeah. I know, I know I should believe that Jesus is all I need. And I, I, the reason I'm teasing this out is there's a fine line between gospel faith and gospel fake. And here's the thing. God's not saying, let's just... Paul here's saying, don't lose heart. Don't wallow. Don't, don't dive in the mud of self-pity. But he's also saying, don't be phony. We have a hard time knowing how to walk that line. And I think what Paul is saying here is we have got to dig deeper into grace. We've got to meditate on grace. We've got to cultivate grace. We've got to set aside whatever time we need to remind ourselves of what we have received from Christ and what we have been given through Christ. Because the good news is that God has chosen us to deserve to, to, to receive a kingdom when all we deserve is His judgment. He's chosen to send us out into the world as His daughters and sons to bring good news, to be good news, to receive good news. And to do that primarily through lives that embrace the hardship of suffering. At the heart of the call of Jesus is deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Precisely often at that tension where we have to deny ourselves and where we have to take up our cross that we don't know how to respond. And yet God is here not to condemn us in that place, but once again to pour out His grace on us. To remind us of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, that we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus might also be manifested in 
our lives. It's the grace of God that moves us in the suffering so that we don't lose heart. But lastly, it is the gospel of the curse of Jesus. This is one that I think we may not expect and yet actually is probably Paul's main point. Some of us may even cringe a little at saying the gospel of the curse of Jesus. We have such a weird 21st century view of the church and Jesus that we actually dare to separate those. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. There is no Jesus without the church. There is no church without Jesus. Ephesians makes this clear and will continue to make this clear. And so the text here tells us if really we want to be able to not lose heart in suffering as those who follow him as the church, then we need to make sure that we remember where the church actually is in this plan. So Paul sees the church as worth the suffering in verses 9 through 13. Paul continues, what is his, his go? He's revealing this gospel. He's bringing light for everyone. What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? And what is at the center? Or who is at the center of the plan of God for all time? Verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. The church is not a plan B in God's great history of redemption. It wasn't as if God is saying here, well, you know, I tried Adam and he failed. I tried Israel and they failed. And so why don't we give this thing called the old church a try? No, from the very beginning, this is a part of this mystery that is revealed, this mystery of the gospel, that there would be this people of all nations, of all places, of all times, of all cultures, united in Jesus Christ displaying the glory of God in the world. The church is at the center of history. The church is at the center of the work of the gospel. The church is at the center of a people who do not give in to the power of suffering. Who does the church display this wisdom of God to? To the world, but specifically in our text, to the rulers and authorities heavenly places. What Paul is speaking of here is the angelic and demonic realm. Again, another thing, if we're a people in the 21st century, maybe North American culture who like to separate Jesus and the church, we also seem to not want to talk a lot about the supernatural. But Paul is saying here very clearly, he'll continue in this book, and especially as we get to chapter 6, to speak of the spiritual realm that is real. And it is all around us. Rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That the church united in Christ is displaying the glory of the gospel too. As we live out the boldness and access we have with confidence through our faith in Christ. All for the sake, Paul is saying here, so I'm asking you not to lose. Many of us are familiar with Joni Erickson Tata. Maybe not all of you are. I'm getting older. See some people saying they don't. Well, if you don't know Joni Erickson Tata, look her up. She will bless your life and your heart. She is a, a 
a great not only teacher but just speaker of the gospel, particularly in terms of suffering. She was a a great swimmer that at one point dove into a pool and was paralyzed from the neck down and lived or was living the rest of her life as a quadriplegic. I'm saying that wrong. You guys know what I'm trying to say. And she uh, had to wrestle with suffering. Someone so full of life who all of a sudden now has to just live, basically only been able to use her mouth. Some of you are familiar with the painting she does, even with just her mouth. It's beautiful. But what many of us don't know is a, a part of Jonah's story that involved another friend that was suffering, which could say more about hers. But I won't. We've all. Here's why I'm telling this. We we can go see Jonah's suffering. We can see how God has caused that for good. Right. Great public ministry, book, exposure, blessing to others. We can see her even tell how she's grown. Well, what rocked her world at one point was seeing another person in the facility that she was in who was a young girl who, full of life, was running one day and just fell. And her legs stopped working, and by the end of the day, she was paralyzed instead of neck down. She had some type of rare, quick quick-acting disease, and she watched her suffer in this facility and die. No book, right? No, wow, I know it's really hard, but at least we all got to see what God did with it. Well, none of that. Nobody sees nothing. Just pain sorrow, death. That was until another friend of Johnny's pointed her to Ephesians 3.10. There were people. There were watchers. There were watchers who saw that little band of believers in that room even for that short period of time Love one another. Speak the word of Christ to one another. Serve one another. We're on camera. We're all on camera. We're all being watched. You may think your suffering in your life is unseen. We as a small church in a small cafeteria in Cleveland, Tennessee may think, who cares how we love each other? Who cares how we live out our life together? Some days you may feel like, I know I'm getting handed the ball, but I'm being sacked before I can even take a, have a chance to take a first step. You may think, what's the point? The point is the glory of God's manifold wisdom being displayed through our lives together. And what Paul is saying here is the game, our game's not on ESPN3. So I'm not a big sports person. But right, I, there's all these ESPNs, right? The bad games are on ESPN3 or 4 or whatever. But the good games are what, e, is it even called ESPN1? Help me out, Jason. It's just ESPN, right? 
thank you. I need help on sports analogies. ESPN. This is what's amazing. The nonprofit's not on ESPN one. I'll say that to help me. The parachurch isn't on ESPN one. The government of the world. Everybody's watching it every day, right? All day long. Blah 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 blah. What's going on? And that stuff's important. That's not even on ESPN ESPN one. What's on the channel? that all the principalities, rulers, and authorities of all the world are watching. It's the channel known as the church. That's why Paul's saying, don't lose heart, Ephesian church, or Ephesian churches. We may have a low view of the church, but God does not. We may have a low view of the rulers and authorities of heavenly places, but God does not. God has saved us to be a part of his people, dwelt with his presence and sent with his purposes to be the body and blood of Jesus. Can you remember it? Not the blood. To be the body and bride of Jesus. And do you, do you remember the story of Job? Satan says, test your servant Job. I think he's only following you because life's easy. We see here a picture of what I think Paul is pointing out. It's that that same type of warfare, that same type of work is at, is at work in his people in the church. The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places looking down upon us here in Cleveland, Tennessee. Will they continue to love one another even when this happens? Will they continue to serve one another even when this happens? Will they continue to forgive one another? There's no way they could. Remember, these rulers and authorities are not omniscient. They don't know everything. They can't tell the future. And they're watching us to see the power of God through the gospel displayed through them especially when it's really hard and they're struggling. If you're like me, you may hear these things and you may feel more convicted at times to encourage you. Because we do, I do often define myself by my circumstances versus Jesus as Lord. I get angry and bitter and detached versus viewing my life through a lens of grace. We can feel like the church is only something that makes things worse that the worth isn't worth the effort and we can engage in being the people of God with joyless duty. I challenge to see that in doing so we find ourselves in opposition to God. We find ourselves in rebellion against what he is calling us to but we find ourselves looking to someone who is even better than Paul. We find ourselves looking to the one who knew what it like to get pummeled in life and death. We find ourselves looking to the one who lived for us. But he lived as God and no man. When he went to the cross, he was captured. But what did he say? You don't do this under your authority. You went to the one, we looked to the one who didn't do it because he had to, but he did it because he had a stewardship 
He had a mission from the Father that he was sent to complete. And Hebrews 12 says he did it for the joy set before him. And who did he do it for? Acts 20 and 28 tells the leaders, the elders of Ephesus, to pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock, to the church, and whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And can you just imagine what it was like for the rulers and authorities to watch on the day that Jesus died for the church? They must have thought they had won. They must have thought that finally, finally, all of humanity created for the glory of God will be left lost and condemned. And all that will be displayed is that God is not the great ruler of the universe. And that Colossians 2 tells us that through the cross, Colossians 2.15, you can look it up, we don't have time, that through the cross, Jesus put the rulers and authorities to open This morning, God is inviting us again into this day. As we come to his table this morning in response to his word, he is coming, he is calling us to come and look upon the victory of Jesus for his people. This is why he calls his church to come to the table. Not as individuals, but together. That's why it's communion, not individunion, if that's even a word. Right? It's why we, we don't just all go home and whether they sell them or not, I'm sorry, and pop out our pocket communion and say, I'm doing no. He says you take the bread because you're all a part of one loaf. You're the body of Christ. We take the cup because Jesus gave his body, for his blood for his church. 